Good morning, church family. I want to wish all of you dads a happy Father's Day. And I want to just point out the obvious. We are very blessed as a fellowship to have in our midst a whole bunch of guys who are following hard after Jesus and standing on the high ground of faith in Christ alone. Amen? Amen. Happy Father's Day, dads. And I, I, I want us to turn our attention to the heart of our Heavenly Father. How many of you know this is God's heart for His people, this Bible? And in this Bible, we read of what God our Father thinks of us. You ever wonder that? What does God think of me? We live in a world that tells you to obsess over what you think about yourself. Have you noticed that? Our culture tells us that self-measures based on self's feelings are the measures that matter most. Be what you want. Do what you want. So long as you feel good about yourself, that's, that's all that matters. If you think you're right, you're right. If you think you're good, even great, you are. And this worldly philosophy of self-obsession applies to pessimists as well, not just optimists. It's, it's for Eeyores too, not just the Tiggers, right? <laughs> if you think you're wrong, you are. If you feel you're bad, you are. Especially if others tell you so. Oh, bother. What's a, what's a man to do? What's a woman to do? But on this Father's Day, in this place, our aim is to answer from Scripture, not from within ourselves, but from God's truth. What does God, our Father, think of us? It's to be God-centered, not self-centered, that gives us real confidence and, and real security as the people of God. Uh, the Bible alone gives the real and right measure of self. Did you know that? Not the advertising, you see. So today, let's just stand on the firm ground of Scripture together. We're in Matthew 3, aren't we? Uh, we've been singing the truth of Matthew 3 already. I in my Savior, am happy and blessed. Are you happy and blessed this morning? No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. So in, in light of what we see here in Matthew 3, these last few verses of the chapter, let, let's just answer the question, what does my Father think of me, my Heavenly Father? Verse 13 of Matthew 3, Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. 
And when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Matthew's gospel, as we've seen, begins by echoing the early history of God's covenant people, Israel. First of all, in the incarnation of God the Son, uh, Matthew has has told us a, a new genesis is underway, a new beginning for God's world and God's people. What do we mean by that? God is remaking his world, and God is remaking his people through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a gospel work, this new creation. It's not a political work. It's not the work of human government. It's not the work of self. It's the work of the gospel, this recreation. It all comes to us through the work of God's anointed, anointed king, our Jesus And Matthew has shown us that this new genesis requires a new exodus. Jesus has come to save his people from their sins, not leave us in sin, to save us from our sins, from our Egypt, if you will. He'll not leave his people in bondage to the enemy of souls. Out of Egypt I called my son, says the father through the prophets. And Matthew has now shown us God's Israel leaving Egypt to live for God. The Christ child had been called out of Egypt, Matthew says, for his people. He's come to live the life his covenant people have failed to live. He's come to live the life that you and I have failed to live from Egypt. Israel was led by God into the wilderness, weren't they? And so too then is our Jesus now led into the wilderness. So Matthew 3, remember, takes place in the wilderness of necessity. And don't miss the the symbolism of this terrible, deadly place. This wilderness is is as dry and desolate and and deadly as the sin that separates you from God. I mean, what a picture that is. And you and I live in an age where if you want to, you can shower every day. I'm not saying everybody does, but you got the option, right? Think of this desert in Jesus' day. People walking through the wilderness. There are no buses This is going by foot. And and the dust and the sweat from this desert heat would have been overwhelming. And then they come to a refreshing oasis like the Jordan River. And you think, well, that's not much compared to the rivers we have here in the Northwest. Well, we don't have that kind of wilderness here, do we, either? What a refreshing oasis it would have been for people in Jesus' day to be journeying on foot in the wilderness and then come to water such as this. And and yet, what what a bizarre scene this is, because Jesus, 
Our Savior, our King, seeks to participate in a baptism of repentance for the remission of sin. Why? What a strange thing this is. This, remember, this isn't from this isn't a desire to just get wet. Remember that from last week? That's not what baptism is. Why would Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who takes away the world of sin in you and in me, why would he not just seek to be baptized, but demand to be baptized. Remember, the gospel preached by John the Baptist was a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. What, what does it mean to repent? It, re, it means to turn from sin and, and to turn to God. Repentance is a radical change in loyalty from self to God. Has, has that change happened in you? You say, well, I've been baptized. I'm not asking you that. Has that changed happened in you? You see, to be baptized by John meant that a person had broken with her sinful life. She, she's turned by faith to God. She's begun a new life, a Godward life. Jesus knew no sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us, the scripture says. Jesus didn't need to repent of anything. Jesus only knew a Godward life. This is not Joseph the carpenter's son by nature. This is God's son by nature. This man, Jesus, is divine. He comes from eternity past, doesn't he? he he's, he's been born into humanity of the Spirit of God. So why then must Jesus not only seek to be baptized, but he seems to be saying, hey, John, I must be baptized. This is of necessity. And it's not to do with getting wet. It's no scandal that we wonder about this because John the Baptist wondered about it too. Look at verse 14. John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? John recognizes that Jesus has no need whatsoever for repentance, unlike the, the, the masses who have been streaming to John along the River Jordan to be baptized. And why did they come to be baptized of John? Well, was it not a work of the Spirit of God enabling them to see in themselves a great need to repent, a, a, a great need to confess sin and turn to God? What does God think of you? That, that, that was the question we started with. He, he thinks the same of you as those who were baptized by John. He, he thinks you're a sinner. And your, your conscience testifies to this if it's working at all. So happy Father's Day. <laughs> you know, I was talking to a lady just um, a couple, three days ago. And we were looking at a little workbook on marriage, and 
It, it, her husband was there with us, and the, 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 the assignment was to, to name uh, two specific sins uh, that God in Christ has forgiven in your life. And, and you know, she said, I, I've, I couldn't answer that question because I've never really seen myself as a sinner. And um, I, I, I can't think of anything in particular for which God has need to forgive me. And, you know, we gasp at that, but, but keep in mind, that's not an uncommon viewpoint at all. Why? Because you and I define what sin is. That's why. I haven't murdered anyone. I've not stolen, certainly not by force. And I, and I tend not to associate with those who do such things. How could you possibly call me a sinner? But all you have to do is look into the mirror. Do you look into the mirror? Most of us did that before we came to church today, right? All of us probably should have. But most of us did that before we came to church, and we did what? We said, oh, that's okay, or man, something needs to be fixed here, right? (laughs) Look into the mirror of God's law and see just how blemished you are. Surely you and I have placed other things above God, haven't we? The God who says to his people, you shall have no other gods before me. By nature, we put ourselves above God. We think of God revolving around us, don't we? Not the other way around. We laugh today at the ignorance of those who once thought the sun revolved around the earth. And yet, how many here today still live as if God the sun revolves around you? And maybe you've not robbed others. But surely you've robbed God of his glory. Surely you've robbed him of the worship he is due every day of your life. Maybe you've not murdered. You've heard the expression. Do you ever think of divorce? No. Murder, yes, but not divorce. Surely we've indulged in Angry, murderous thoughts a time or two. We know what it is to covet rather than live with contentment. You know, God calls us to live with contentment with whatever his good providence allows in our lives. And how many of us chafe against that good providence of God? I know I certainly have a time or two. And I'm guessing I'm not the only one here in that boat. You look into the, should we keep going? You look into the mirror of God's law. And you see what? I'm not right. Something's wrong. Something must be addressed. What does God think of you? That's the question. How long do you suppose? is the record of your failure to live within God's boundaries for his people. The law of love and liberty that leads us into his best. How many of us, how many times have said, you know, I know that, but I I think I'm going to go this other way. Now, how did John know this sinlessness of Jesus? I mean, he is scandalized. Are you still listening? 
He's scandalized by the fact that Jesus comes to him to be baptized. Well, well remember, um, Jesus and John are both now 30 years of age. Luke's gospel tells us this. Uh, but John's been wandering around the Judean wilderness eating bugs most of his adult life. And Jesus has been up north in Nazareth, in, in, in Galilee, Nazareth in particular. They weren't neighbors. They, they weren't Facebook friends. How, how did John have a sense of this about Jesus? Well, remember, John and Jesus are cousins, aren't they? Mary and Elizabeth are cousins. It, it was John the Baptist who, who leaped in his mother's womb at the very presence of Jesus still in Mary's borrowed womb. Elizabeth was favored by God to bear the one whose preaching would turn many of God's children to the Lord. And Mary was even more highly favored, wasn't she, to bear the one to whom God's people must turn. John and Jesus knew each other. But again, there's no bus service in ancient Palestine. They live 100 plus miles apart. They didn't see each other very often. And yet John has a sense of Jesus' impeccability, his sinlessness. Why? Why is Jesus seeking, demanding baptism by John? Look at verse 15. Permit it to be so now. Listen, if Jesus says to you, permit it to be so now, you should probably do that. <laughs> Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. That word permit uh, in its origin is a very strong word. When, when Jesus healed a demon-possessed man, says Mark's gospel, the man begged Jesus to let him come with Jesus and the disciples and, and, and just follow them in their ministry, but Jesus did not permit him. What a, what a strange thing. Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you, Jesus said. When Jesus was to be transfigured, Jesus permitted no one but Peter, James, and John to go with him. How the others must have wanted to be with Jesus. Jesus wouldn't permit it. It's a pretty strong word. And, and so when, when Jesus says to John, permit it to be so now, he's saying this, this baptism is essential. Your king says to you in his word this morning, that baptism you're reading about was essential for me and essential for you. Why? Well, Matthew's gospel is all to do with God's kingdom and his king, isn't it? Who is this king? Well, well, it's Jesus, Matthew says. Jesus, the, the man who is God, had lived in relative obscurity for 30 years. Think about that. We know almost nothing about what we would call Jesus' growing up years. But here, in the Jordan... The king gladly identifies with his sinful people. And if you're one of his sinful people, that means you. 
This baptism is to do with you. Jesus is not baptized for his own sins, but for the sins of his people. The sinless one, in a sense, is covered with sin, but not his own, yours and mine. At Jesus' baptism, God's promised Savior is revealed. Listen, listen to the gospel according to Isaiah. What, what had Yahweh promised to do for his people? Isaiah 19.20 says this. He will send them a Savior and a mighty one, and he will deliver them. Notice the, how emphatic that is. It's not a maybe. It's a, it's a for sure. He will deliver him. What, what did, what did uh, Joseph get told by the angel? Call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Isaiah 53, 11, He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. He shall bear their iniquities. What refreshed Jesus on the day of his baptism? What, what was it that he'd been wandering in the wilderness and, and water was a welcome sight? Is not to do with that. What refreshed Jesus was his obedience to the Father to identify with you who believe upon him, knowing that he was taking upon himself the condemnation that your sin, your iniquity deserves. What a, what a baptism this is. You and I blush and look the other way when someone we're embarrassed by walks into the room. Here is Jesus, the sinless Son of God, publicly acknowledging how refreshing it is for him to obey the Father and identify with his sinful people. People like me and people like you. How many of you are glad today that Jesus identifies with you? Jesus referred to Calvary itself as a baptism, a, a baptism of the Father's wrath. He says in, in Luke twelve fifty, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. He spent his days ministering on this earth, looking ahead to a cross where he would be immersed in the Father's wrath on behalf of his people as our substitute. And he says, man, I'm just, I'm just distressed until I accomplish what the Father has sent me to do. And now on this day we read of in Matthew 3, God's promised Savior has, has come to the Jordan. He's come to John to identify himself with his people. Permit it, John. Permit it to be so. So, so what must John do? Well, well, verse 15 again, then John allowed him. It, when Jesus says, permit it, <laughs> you, you, you best obey. And, and what a picture this baptism is for Jesus and for us. Again, 
the gospel according to Isaiah. Isaiah 53, 12 says, Because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. This is, this is being pictured in Jesus' baptism. Into the water, then, goes the man who is God, fully identifying with his sinful people. You see, when you and I walk into the room, so to speak, in the presence of Jesus, he doesn't look away, and he's not ashamed. He identifies fully with us. He was and is our representative before the Father. What do I mean by that? Well, you've heard the little ditty, haven't you? In, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. Our first father, Adam, created to perfectly reflect the holiness of God, messed it up, didn't he? And we're born with the nature of our first father, Adam. Born to mess it up, really, when it comes to reflecting the perfection of God, the holiness of God. But our king, the scripture says, is the second Adam, isn't he? He represents us to God in his holiness. So that as he is accepted by God, think about this, as the son is accepted by the father, so we might be accepted by God as we cling to Jesus. How can we be sure? The same way John the Baptist was made sure. Look at verse 16. When, he, when Jesus had been baptized, he came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. Wow. The Holy Spirit descends visibly. Through the heavens open. Remember, John is the last of the Old Testament prophets, isn't he? Sure, surely John knew his Bible. So, so John knew, for example, example Isaiah 11.2, which says this, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. So, so this is not just cousin Jesus asking to be baptized. This is Jesse's greater son. This is the greater David, the, the, the righteous branch promised from eternity past. And, and here in the Jordan's waters, this greater David, this servant who is the suffering servant for his people, not only identifies with his people, but is now equipped by the Spirit to serve his people. Do you ever think about that? Well, Jesus perfectly obeyed the will of the Father because he's God. He is God. Be sure of that. And yet he is man. You mean 50-50? No, 100%. You say, well, how, where's the math in that? This is not to do with math. This is about the mystery of the incarnation. How does perfect humanity live to the obedience of God 
by walking in the Spirit. So here is Jesus, anointed by the Spirit. At Jesus' baptism, God's suffering servant is empowered. Another verse John surely knew, Isaiah 42.1, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. So again, this is not just Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter's son. This is God's servant. This is the elect one who's come to bring justice to God's elect people and God's world. And now he's equipped, isn't he, for his earthly ministry. What a a mystery this is. Do you ever think about this? Our salvation. Are you a saved person today? Then, Then think about this. Your salvation and mine is the work of our triune God. Salvation is a a new genesis. In the beginning, God made this world and and, and his people in his triune nature. You remember Genesis 1? God says, let us make man in our own image. And when you read that the first time, you thought, well, who's us? Who's our? (laughs) The Trinity, right? God in three persons, if you will. And here in Matthew 3, what do you see? You see the Trinity, our triune God, at work in this new Genesis, this new Exodus. The Father choosing his own. The the Son serving his own through his life and his death and resurrection. All of it in the power of the Holy Spirit. And, And we'll see in Matthew 4... Jesus led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. And and how does perfect humanity defeat the temptations of the evil one? By the word, in the power of the Holy Spirit. You say, well, that that must mean we, we trust in the Holy Spirit's enablement because we're weak and we're imperfect. No, we, we must trust in the Holy Spirit's power because we're human. Jesus was and is perfect humanity, and yet he served us in the power of the Spirit. So so why why do I belabor this? Because the king who commands you and me to walk in the Spirit and will not satisfy the lust of the flesh um, has so walked in the Spirit himself. How closely... Our Jesus has identified with us. He commands nothing he has not done for us himself. And he sends his spirit to enable his people to live Godward lives. Listen to Isaiah 61.1. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. John gets to see this prophecy being fulfilled right before his very eyes. And in a sense, we are too, as we just gaze through the lens of Scripture here, of Matthew's gospel, and behold God the Son, Jesus in the wilderness, identifying with his people, and now equipped to serve his people. So so what was the question we, we started out with? What does God think of you? 
As you've looked into the mirror of God's law. Well, before we answer that, we have to answer another question. What does God think of Jesus? What does the Father think of Jesus? You see, the Spirit descending as a dove in, the, in, in this very open, public way is the sign that the Father affirms Jesus is his elect one, come to save his people from their sins. John the Baptist actually acknowledges this in um, another John, John the Apostle, who wrote the Gospel of John. Listen to John 1. It says, John the Baptist bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. So you see, at Jesus' baptism, the man who is God, who's lived in um, relative obscurity for, for some 30 years, is now publicly and powerfully affirmed as God's anointed. At Jesus' baptism, God's anointed king is affirmed. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the Savior who identifies with his people. Jesus is the servant empowered to represent his people before God. Jesus is the king affirmed by God for his people. Do you belong to this Jesus? Do you belong to this Jesus in such a way that a voice from heaven might look upon you in Christ and say, this is my beloved in whom I am well pleased? God the Father though he is not named here, is clearly the one exclaiming in Matthew 3.17, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This anointed king, God had promised his people in ages past. Remember Psalm 2. God says what? I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Jesus knew this day was coming. This great unveiling. This this ordination day, if you will. It had been promised, planned. And Matthew says to us here in chapter 3, the day has come. The heavens open for the one who has come to open the gates of righteousness for his people. It matters much, friends, what the Father thinks of the Son. Because what he thinks of you is all to do with your relationship with the Son. Are you following this? And we've come full circle, really. That must mean we're almost done. What does God think of you?
Do you realize, friend, that at the end of your life, it won't matter a hill of beans what you thought of yourself? And it won't matter a hill of beans what somebody else thought about you. What will matter to you then is what must matter to you today. What does God think of you? You can answer that by your answer to another question. What do you think of this Jesus? What do you, what do you think of this Jesus? This, does it please you to identify with him as he has you? Does it please you to repent of your sin and trust in him wholly? Has that work of the Spirit descended upon you? Does it please you to live for the kingdom as the the king lived for you? As Paul would say to the Romans, are you baptized into Christ? Immersed in Christ, because God's favor rests on all who depend wholly upon his Son with whom he is well pleased. On what basis is God pleased with any of us? Only on the basis of our belonging to the Son. This proclamation of the Father's favor is amazing to me because Jesus had been the constant, or God the Son had been the constant delight of the Father for all eternity. The the Father loves the Son for his own sake. And here, we're getting a little taste of what Matthew will develop throughout his gospel. We who belong to Jesus are loved of God for Jesus' sake. We are adopted children in God's family, are we not? Through Christ, we are children of God. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we, we should be called the children of God. This is the great theme of all of Scripture. Are you standing in Christ alone today? When you, when you think of that question that you're sick of me asking, what, is, what does God think of you? Does your mind immediately go to Jesus? Are you still trying to noodle through the, the hopeless calculus of how many points you're scoring with God? It's bad math, friend. As the Father is pleased with the Son, so he is pleased with all who are found in him. Or using Matthew's kingdom language, we could say this, as God is pleased with his king, so he is pleased with the king's people. Now let me just end with this. And I really do mean that. We're going to end right shortly. Do you you see how baptism alone, and by that I, I mean just getting wet, um, doesn't save you. Baptism simply pictures a sinner like me 
identifying with this Jesus who came and identified with me. Though he was without sin and is without sin, he came and identified with me, a sinner. What a picture this is of being born of the Spirit of God to to repent of sin and be refreshed in God's forgiveness and enlivened by the Spirit, brought up out of that water again. What a picture that is. New life in Christ. To be baptized then pictures in such a powerful way, in a refreshing way, that through Christ alone, you are now immersed in God's favor. I pray we live this way. We live in a world that wants us to measure ourselves and to base our view, not only of self and others, by that measure. I, I, I trust we see now that God's way is the real and right way and the better way because God looks upon us and he takes his measure based on the perfection of his son for his people. What a glad thing this is. What a, what a salvation is ours to know that in Christ we're immersed in the favor of our Father. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you left the glory of your heaven and came and lived among people like us, lawbreakers, every one of us. And Lord, in your sinless self, your sinless life, you lived out the very righteousness of God that you might impart it to us. Lord, that you might go to that cross and shed your blood, take upon yourself the wrath of God that my sin deserves so that I might be favored by God as you are. Thank you, Lord. I pray that among us this day, you would bring saving faith to your people. Lord, I pray that you would build your kingdom in this place. That we would stop measuring our standing with our creator by whether we've done this or that or the other thing. But that we might rest wholly upon your work for us. We ask you by your spirit to make it so. And we ask you this for your glory. So it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.